Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 9 this morning. As we start a new mini-series, these mini-series in the book of Luke, okay? The Lord and his followers in chapter 9. So, so here's the deal. Since the birth of the church in the book of Acts and up to today, the question, what does it look like to follow hard after Jesus has been asked and answered, we know, over and over. Some of those answers have been good, <laughs> and some of those answers have been poor. So we're thankful, though, that God would give us this chapter in Luke 9, where we can spend the next seven weeks answering that question. What does it look like to follow hard after Jesus, the Lord and his followers? Kyle Edelman, in a great book that I read years ago called Not a Fan, meaning Jesus did not come to make fans, but followers, says this. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from, from them. Now, as an ex-college athlete, I'm very familiar between the difference of fans in the stands and those of us who are on the field. And they had a lot to say about what went on in the field, but they had no sweat invested. Does that make sense? Jesus came to put us all on the field. We're all playing this game, quote unquote, called following hard after Christ. So Jesus wasn't looking for fans. He, wasn't, he was looking for followers. And just in all transparency, we at Fellowship Bible Church want to produce followers of Christ, not fans of Christ. There's a whole difference. So we'll see in this simple narrative this morning of Jesus sending the 12 out for the first time to actually do ministry. Now, context here is Jesus had, was about 30 years old. He had lived in relative obscurity. And at 30, he was baptized a few chapters back in Luke by John the Baptist. Remember that? John the Baptist said, here he is, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And that started his three-year ministry to the cross. Here in Luke chapter 9, we are 18 months into this three-year ministry. We're at the half, halfway point of Jesus' ministry. So there's only 18 months left till his death and resurrection. And up to this point, Jesus had done all the ministry that had been done. Jesus has done it himself. All the teaching, he did it. All the handling the conflicts, he did it. All the healings, he did it. All the miracles, Jesus did it. Jesus was a one-man show. Meaning, wherever Jesus was, that's the only place gospel ministry took place. Jesus was the only gospel preacher in town. So Jesus' ministry in Galilee is nearly over here. His ministry to the Jews. That's what it meant to have a ministry in Galilee. And that is because in Luke 9.51, we have the turning point of the book of Luke. We have the climax verse. If you want to circle Luke 9.51, we're going to get to it in the next section. But that's where everything turns because it tells us, key verse here, that Jesus set his face 
to Jerusalem. At that point, just a few verses to come, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. Jesus sets his face to the cross. Nothing will keep him from going to the cross to shed his blood to pay the penalty for sinful mankind. And so we are building to that point, folks. We are getting close. So this is sort of the last flurry of ministry in Galilee to a group of Jews whose hearts have been completely hard to him. This is an opportunity for the 12 disciples and apostles to apply what they have been seeing Jesus do. Up to this point, they have been learners. This is their first internship, one writer said, for a lifetime work in ministry. Let's see what happens. Let me read our text first, Luke 9, verses 1 through 9. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and they went to the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, meaning John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. He wanted to see Jesus. So I put in your notes here to follow Christ means, means this. We're going to get to that. But here's what we need to go back to just to get some more context. In chapter six of Luke, we saw where Jesus identified and called out the 12 men that we know as apostles, these disciples. He tells them, you're going to be our messengers. Now, you and I are not apostles, but we need to understand when you and I come to Christ, that's his call on our life. He chooses us. We don't choose him. We're not looking for him. He comes after us, and he calls us to be his messengers. He had told them in Luke 6, you will now fish for men. So he's making good on that promise. Remember, he said, you're catching fish. That's a good thing, but I'm going to make you fish for men. They're much harder to catch, and they're a lot bigger, right? But it is drier, okay? Now, he sends them out two by two here for their first short time Short-term mission assignment. Folks, these are just ordinary men with an extraordinary calling. They are like us. They're no superstars. Matter of fact, matter of fact, these men are not from the religious establishment. These are ordinary men who turn the world upside down. And you and I are the fruit of their labor. 
So we pause to think in context this morning. We've got to be thinking as believers, at the end of my life, where will the fruit of my labor be? What will my legacy look like in terms of others who are knowing and walking Christ because I was used by the master as a follower of Christ? So what does it mean to follow Christ? The first word is multiplication. So just to explain this, just to bring it down to earth, it is that you grow in such a way that you actually can help somebody who has not grown as much as you have. To put it another way, that you make yourself available for someone to invest in you, which you may need to initiate with. Will you help me grow? Because I've noticed you're maturing Christ. I respect your life. I respect your transparency. I see your honesty. I want to grow. Will you invest in me so that at some point I can begin investing my life into someone who needs to grow, who hasn't grown as much as me? That's the Christian message here. What we have to do in the Western culture is get away from this thought that Christianity is about me and my growth alone. (laughs) It's not. It's about my growth going in that I'm a conduit. I grow, I take it, and I spit it out. And I grow and take it, and I spit it out. Now, sometimes these seasons look long-term with a person, as I had Dr. Gary Sweeten do with me and Joe Schrader do with me for years. Sometimes they look medium length. Sometimes they're every two weeks for six months. Sometimes there's a one moment encounter, but I'm looking away to give what I have been given. I love one of my favorite books, and I didn't say this in the beginning, but at the bottom of your notes, I listed several resources for you because I want you to know this. I think you know this. I want you to apply this. You will not grow into the person that you need to be so that you can multiply your life in another unless you become a great reader. This enough on Sunday morning won't work. Try eating one time a week and see how you feel by the sixth day. You get that, right? Nod your head. I'm with you. So supplementary reading about certain topics biblically. These are some great resources. A book that I read 35 plus years ago, The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's a classic now by Robert Coleman, who was one of my seminary profs, put it this way. This was the genius of Jesus' strategy. He stepped away from the multitudes and invested in the 12 in order that the multitudes would one day be reached. This, what we're seeing this morning, is the start of that ministry of multiplication. Now, there are 13 gospel preachers and healers, not just one. And Galilee will get this last blast of the kingdom of God, even though their hearts were hard toward Jesus. Here we see mercy. They have rejected Jesus. They have pounded him. They have reviled in him. And he says, I'm going to give him one more blast here. We're spreading out and we're going for it. Now, when I look at a text like this, I want to ask myself questions. Why did Jesus choose the 12? Why didn't he choose 50? Why didn't he choose 100? I think it's interesting to note that Jesus choosing the 12 was the direct connection 
between the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a judgment, if you would, on the 12 tribes of Israel for their unbelief in the Messiah. These 12 men are the new spiritual heads to the 12 tribes of Israel because, as I said, there was not one person in the religious establishment that was able to be an apostle. So now there's a new covenant, there's new leaders, the true heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 22, that we'll get to obviously in about 2029, <laughs> uh, Jesus says to them, I sign to you as my father, to these 12, Assign, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So here we see this very beginning of ministry of multiplication. That's what it means to follow hard after Christ, that you are multiplying your life into another who has not grown as much as you. Secondly, there's proclamation. Jesus says in our text that he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And the word proclaim here is this word picture of a town crier who would go out in the middle of the town and say, hear ye, hear ye. Here's the news of the day. And the news of the day here was the king has arrived. The king is here. And this king has a kingdom the Messiah is here. He is alive. Proclaiming the kingdom of God is preaching the gospel message that God is a kingdom. And you can come in that kingdom via repentance and belief. Repentance of your sin and belief in the sin-forgiving death on the cross of the Lord Jesus. That God is king, that God rules over all, and one day will destroy, as this text says, all opposition to him. And in doing so, will bring himself incredible eternal glory. So Jesus says to his men, you have heard me and watched me do this for 18 months. You now get to go and do the same thing. You now get to go and preach the same kingdom message that I have been preaching in front of you for 18 months. Don't edit it. Don't change it. Don't infuse your voice into it. Just do what you've seen me do. That is the great message to preachers. One of the greatest things I heard in seminary about preaching God's word was this. As I teach, can I imagine Jesus Christ, not you, not you, because I'm human, I can imagine what are they thinking, but the professor said, you imagine Jesus Christ sitting in the back of the room or standing in the back of the room, and as I teach, he is saying, exactly, that's exactly why I put it in the text. Yes, that's what I meant. And then you get, you save yourself from teaching something that's not here. Jesus to his men. Normal Christianity for a Christ follower. Let me say it again. Normal. Just normal. How normal is blinking? How many of you have blinked since you've been in here? I hope all of you are dead, right? Or you got eye problems. It is so normal Christianity to tell another person about the hope that you have 
in Christ. It's why we have spent this whole past year with this emphasis on outward with the mission to train you, to equip you, to give you the apologetics needed to speak about Jesus. Ping pong balls, equipping you, sermon Bible studies. This mandate has never changed. Even though we may do it in fear and trembling. That's exactly the way Paul said he did it. <laughs> Paul didn't seem fearful, but he told us what he was feeling. And notice Jesus gave them both the power to do it and the authority to do it. The same is true with us. We have the spirit of the living God in us. So we have multiplication. That's what it means to follow Christ. We have proclamation. And then I love this third one. We have regeneration. Regeneration means the act or process of renewal. And there's none of us that doesn't need renewal spiritually, emotionally, physically. We are broken people as we sang about this morning and we get to really dark, broken places from our own sinfulness and the environments around us. So Jesus has regeneration as a part of following him. He said he sent them out with authority over demons and to cure diseases and to heal. The first thing we need to understand about a text like this is everything that is described here is not prescribed. Everything here that is a description of what's going on is not a prescription for us to follow. Meaning, the healings and miracles were to validate the message that they preached. You do understand that. That's what Luke's been showing us all the time about Jesus, that he was doing miracles and he was doing healings to validate, to make people listen. Uh-oh, maybe he is the Messiah. So today, for example, if a preacher stands up and teaches from the Bible, I don't need to see him do a miracle in order to validate that he is speaking on behalf of God. All I have to do is open the scriptures. So to me, I can know whether he's speaking God's word or not because I know the scriptures through what he preaches. At that point, there was no New Testament standard. These healings and miracles proved that they were preaching a divine message. It showed that Jesus gave them or delegated to them his power and authority to be able to do exactly what he had been doing. This was a unique, special calling on these 12 apostles. Folks, you may look on church signs, you may see on the internet, you may see on business card, apostle so-and-so. There's no such thing as apostles anymore. This was it. I'm not an apostle. I am the honorable reverend. <laughs> I sort of like how that sounds, you know. But there's no apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with signs and wonders and mighty works. That's what true apostles did. Men are not given that unique and special ability to do that anymore. Therefore, no one has these kind of powers. And those who claim to have these powers, let me just speak very relevant to us this morning, 
the prosperity preachers, the TV preachers, and some of us have been fooled by them. Every one of them, every one of them to the person have terrible doctrine about God, about sin, about man, about Christ. Every one of them. These folks are not true to the word of God. Now, matter of fact, in this section of regeneration, think about it. Jesus is telling these men to renew the lives of those who are suffering, the men and women who are suffering and hurting, the sick, the hurting, the downcast, the oppressed, the oppressed meaning by the lies of the evil one. When we think of demons here, we're not thinking of horns coming out of uh, people's heads and them following their devil worshipers. No, it is, it is, he says this authority over demons means those who have bought into and are believing lies of the father of lies, Satan himself, and because of these lies, it has and is destroying their lives. You get that? These are hurting people. These TV preachers, prosperity preachers, who claim to have these powers actually make the people suffer more by taking advantage of their situation to manipulate them for money. You think about how much money you would pay to have your son or daughter, for example, or your wife or husband with terminal cancer be healed. Now let me be clear. Jesus Christ can and does heal diseases. I think one of the great things when we see Christ face to face and it's clear as a bell, crystal clear in heaven, he will show us all the times that he healed us when we had a disease and maybe didn't even know. Jesus Christ can and does heal spiritual blindness. We know that. Even the miracle of salvation is the greatest miracle there is. We were blind and now we see. But he does it and he does not need a man to go through. He does it himself. There are no more apostles. Now, practically speaking, I love this because at Fellowship Bible Church, we have a ministry called Regeneration. Regen. And let me just say openly, more you... How do I say this? There's more of you that need to be there that aren't there. <laughs> That's okay. I've actually thought myself after a couple episodes, Jeff, you need to go back to regeneration, man. <laughs> and that's okay too. It is for folks who have been deceived, which I am one of them, by the lies of the evil one and in doing so have become entangled in addictions, self-hate, depressed, afraid, anxious, Raise your hand if there's anxiety flowing this morning. And I was like, nobody's like, I ain't never been anxious. <laughs> I ain't never been anxious, right? Yeah. Secrets that we all keep, and they're going through the process of being renewed in Christ. They come here every Tuesday night. Christ is healing them by opening their eyes, softening their hearts, declaring his gospel love, healing their pasts, touching them with the tenderness of that gospel. 
giving them a new identity in him and destroying idols and demonic strongholds in their life. And he's doing that through a people-on-people ministry. That's what Jesus does. He renews us, refreshes us, remakes us, retools us. That's the healing that Jesus is speaking of here. Jesus really cares for the spiritual, the physical, and the emotional maturity of his people. So, next, expectation. I love this one. Jesus tells them as they go, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, not extra tunic, and whatever house you stay in, stay there. Meaning, don't go to one house and you don't like it, it's not luxurious enough, and so as you're in that town preaching the gospel, you see the bigger crib over here, you go, no, just stay right there. Be content where you are. Jesus is telling them to trust him. To expect him that if he gave them delegated power and authority to do what he's called them to do, expect him to provide all that they needed. The expectation is that they would trust him. Jesus is telling them, I have given to you myself freely. Now, as Chad said, you are to freely give it away. This is a caution by the way, to not enrich yourself with ministry. Again, it's what the prosperity preachers do. They take advantage of the pain of people because suffering people certainly can be swayed easily. Jesus is saying here, I will provide for you. This is a part of their training. Remember, they're gonna do this for a lifetime. Most of these 12 men are going to give their life for the gospel. They're going to be martyrs. They're going to be beheaded. They're going to be boiled in oil. They're going to be hung upside down. They're going to be without. They're going to be with plenty. And Jesus is training them. I want you to know, even though you may in the future in ministry have nothing, you still have me. I will provide all that you need here. This reminds me of My oldest son, Josh, is a uh, jet pilot in the Navy. And and you know what he does? He flies planes and teaches others to fly planes. But part of his training early on was they sent him to the desert. They made him basically take off most of his clothes, blindfolded him with a group of other guys as if he got, and then they said, go. They got captured like they were in foreign enemy territory. And for 10 days, they hammered these guys. Part of their training, not part of what they normally do. This is not for all time. In Luke 22, Jesus asked them. He goes back to Luke. This is fascinating. He goes back to Luke 9 and said, remember? Remember when I sent you out with nothing? Did I provide for you? Did I give you everything you needed to do to do what I called you to do? I said, you did. Good. You learned that lesson. Now, now I tell you, go read it. He said, if you have a bag, take it. They were like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You want to take some bread? You hungry? Take it. You want to stick a chicken in the bag? Take it with you. No problem. This is training. He says, I want you to trust me. Fourth, separation. 
verse 5. Jesus says here, those who do not receive this message, that reject the message, he said, shake off the dust as a testimony against them. If the house or town rejects the gospel, Jesus says, I want you to enact this, this old Jewish custom. See, the Jews would walk in Gentile land, and as they crossed back over to Jewish lands, back to Israel, they would stop and shake the dust off of their feet so pagan dirt wouldn't get on holy ground. Dumb but true. Jesus says here, shake off the dirt if they reject the message. I want to just turn over and just take a minute this morning <coughs> to give you a picture, excuse me, in Acts 13 of the message and the response that Paul did, Paul and Barnabas, if people rejected. So this is interesting. Chapter 13, you can just listen. Now there there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Minion, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. How about that? Did you ever notice that? Herod the Tetrarch that we're going to hear more about later had a lifelong friend who had come to Jesus. That ought to encourage you. And Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And after fa fasting and praying, they sent them out. Just like these folks have been sent out. This is the model. If you turn over, starting in verse 15, it says, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stands up and Paul begins to give a history of Jesus in the Old Testament. Paul begins to say, this is the one that the Old Testament spoke about. And he goes through several illustrations. And as he shares all of that, he says to them, but you Israel, you the Jews, you scoff at him, you mock him. The scriptures predicted that you would not receive your only one. It says, verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, rivaling him, reveling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary the word of God be spoken to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning toward the Gentiles. And it said, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were like, Whoop, whoop, whoop. Says that, rejoicing and glorifying the word. They were pumping it up, and as many as were pointed to eternal life believed. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. And Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. That's what Jesus is speaking of. Paul is practicing this model. 
If they reject you, they revile against you. If they attack you, pray for them. Don't argue with them. Move on, folks. There are people that need the gospel, including a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Jesus put it another way a few chapters back. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. Do not throw the preciousness of the gospel to the vicious pigs. Then lastly, consummation. Simply meaning the end game, the wrap up. They were obedient. They did what Jesus said do. And in verse 10, we'll see next week, they came back and reported what happened. Obedience produces long-lasting fruit. It's a great takeaway. Just do what Jesus tells us to do in the midst of fear and trembling and weakness and not knowing all the answers and watch God just produce fruit. So, to follow Christ, those are six great categories for you to circle and sort of say, God, where am I? Where do I need to grow? They're not comprehensive, but they begin to give us a picture of what it means to follow hard after Christ. <clears throat> Lastly, as we wrap up, to follow Christ means you first answer this question. Somebody give me a drum roll. What is the question? Who is this man? That's what Herod asked. It is the most important question in the world. And there's nothing more important than getting the answer right. Years ago, I remember watching a special documentary by Peter Jennings. I think worked for ABC News. And it was around Easter time. And he's asking the question, who is Jesus? He didn't get the answer because he didn't ask those who really knew. Herod is asking the right question, but for the wrong reason. We know this in Luke. Luke has written this gospel. Every gospel is written to answer this question. We've seen Luke thus far asking and answering this question over and over. We saw the demons say who he was, that he was the Holy One of God. We saw the Sadducees and the Pharisees ask in Luke 5, who is this man? We saw the disciples of John the Baptist ask, who is this man? We saw in Luke 7, Simeon's guests asked, who is this man? And the disciples asked this question. After they saw Jesus calm the wind and the waves, they said, who is this? Who is this man that even the wind and waves obey him? It is a great question. And Herod is asking that question. And for us to follow Jesus well, to be a follower, not a fan, we must be able to answer that question. Herod the Tetrarch, let's take a minute to unpack him. Herod hears about the fall, about all the stuff happening in these 12 men's preaching and the miracles. But he doesn't attribute, if you, if you think about it, he doesn't attribute all these miracles and healings and preaching to these 12 men. He says singular, who is this man? Not plural, who is they that go and do that? Which shows us that when the disciples went out, they made sure who got the credit. The message going around wasn't, check me out. They said, check him out. So he asked this question. 
Is it John the Baptist? Is it Elijah? Is it a prophet in the message of the kingdom of God that the king has arrived? That bothered Herod. Why would that bother Herod? Because he called himself a king even though he wasn't a king. He called himself a king because he liked that name and to an insecure king to think there's another king who has arrived, that would bother him. One writer said that the life of Herod would make a great reality TV show. You'd hate to watch it, but you'd find yourself unable to turn away from the train wreck. Sort of like this, <laughs> right? Watching it through covered eyes. Tetrarch means fourth ruler, a ruler over the fourth region of this part of the Roman Empire called Galilee. Galilee was only 50 by 25 miles, so his kingship is just a petty little kingship that he made up. He was ruled by Tiberius Caesar in Rome, who ruled over the whole Roman Empire, and his father was called Herod the Great. So we know that Herod the Tetrarch got his humility from his dad. Sarcasm. His dad, Herod the Great, was the Roman ruler over Israel when Jesus was born. And he is the one who ordered the slaughter of all Jewish boys to and under at the birth of Christ. So our Herod here, though, the Tetrarch, ruled for 42 years. He's been in power since Jesus was two, so about 20 Eight, 29 years. He has, in these 29 years, heard a lot about Jesus. But he's never been able to see him. Here's what we do know. John the Baptist rebuked this Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, over and over and over. We saw that in Luke 3. Matter of fact, Herod the Tetrarch was the poster child for the illustrations of evil and wickedness in John the Baptist's sermons. He would say to his crowds, if you want to see a picture of evil and wickedness, there he is, Herod the Tetrarch. What did Herod do? Herod put John the Baptist in prison for that. He didn't like being the poster child of wickedness and evil. Are you with me? You follow remember all that? Why was he the poster child? Herod's brother, Philip, it gets worse, had married his niece. Imagine marrying your niece. That's what Herod's brother did. Herod's brother's name was Philip. And Herod sees the niece. He thinks she's beautiful. He seduces her. She leaves his brother, Philip. And I think he might have killed his own brother at this point. And our Herod here marries his brother's wife, which is actually his brother's niece. They had a wild party, and Herod's wife or niece did not like John the Baptist. So what did they do? Herod's daughter now goes and dances. Herod was struck with such lustful desire over his own daughter at this wild party. Imagine that he tells her, that was so unbelievably satisfying to my lustful desires. Whatever you want, you can have. And she and her mom get together and say, we want John the Baptist's head on a platter 
And they got it. And that's how the party ends, folks. So Herod is scared to death when he asks this question. Who is this? Has John the Baptist risen from the dead? I don't know about you, but if I was in charge of cutting off a man's head and I thought he rose from the dead, I know where he's coming first. He's coming to get me. That's what's happening here. Herod wanted to see Jesus to kill him. Matter of fact, Luke 13, the Pharisees tell Jesus, go away because Herod wants to kill you. Herod did not ask this question, who is this man to find out truth or believe? Matter of fact, you can remember this. Jesus was before Pilate. Pilate did not want to kill Jesus, but the crowds were demanding it. And who did Pilate send Jesus to? He sent him to Herod. This is 18 months after this account. So Herod finally gets to see him. And if anything, Herod wants to be entertained by his miracles. He had a great opportunity there to, to, to ask the question, who are you? He had a great opportunity to hear the gospel, but it says to us later in Luke that Jesus didn't say a word to him. He didn't answer his questions because he knew he wasn't asking for the right reasons. Herod couldn't have come to Christ like his lifelong friend, but instead we know he mocked Jesus, he put a robe on him, and he sent him back to Pilate. Matter of fact, Herod and Pilate actually were enemies, but they became best friends Historians have said over their hatred for Jesus. We got to answer that question correctly. I want to say this this morning. If you have any doubt on who Jesus is and if you've placed your trust in him, then you need to come see me this morning and let's set up a time. There are, there are many of us, some of us, who've been in the church our whole life. That's been a message of mine. I was in the church my whole life but had not answered that question correctly. This morning, let me ask you to take a minute to ask the question, so what? Biggest question is, who is Jesus to you? Have you placed your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, for the pain and the penalty? The second question, are you following hard after Christ? And what adjustments might you, might you make? What areas? It's not, it's not guilt and shame. This is learning and growing and engaging in such a way that you too can give your life away and be a follower of Christ. Normal Christianity. Take a minute to ask that question. So what?